Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Elia Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And uh, Victor, as we tape this, we're in basically sort of the home stretch of the presidential campaign, and as a result, the media discussion is overwhelmingly focused on who's going to be taking the oath of office when it comes to January. But you cautioned in a recent column that you wrote that we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves because the four months between now and then is a period where there are going to be real dangers for American national security. And we can run through some of the specifics in a moment. But I want to sort of start at the conceptual level because you cite in this piece as one of the sources of this danger the fact that America's ability to deter its enemies is declining. And, and Victor, some of our listeners might be thinking, you know, we have the best fighting force in the world. We famously spend more on our national defense than the next eight nations combined. H- how does a country with those kinds of resources have a problem deterring its enemies? Well, Throughout history, deterrence has never been defined exclusively by potential military power. It also involves the ability to use it or the unpredictability about using it. And so Hitler starts World War II on September 1st, 1939, even though the aggregate forces arrayed against him have more material uh, resources and, and munitions. Same thing in the case of the central powers in World War One. Same thing in Korea, same thing in Vietnam. But people look at two things abroad. One, we have a $20 trillion deficit. And two, defense spending is uh, declining down to below or at 3% GDP, which does not, uh, it's not commiserate with our strategic post-war responsibilities. And then two, they look at Barack Obama and they think, wow, Cairo speech, went over to Laos last weekend, hectored Americans on their racism and their shameful past, five dead, five deadlines that were ignored with Iran. The Iran deal did not temper Iranian behavior. The precipitous pullout from Iraq that collapsed the country, the fake red line with, with Syria, the destruction of Libya, reset, which is kind of a joke now. And they don't see... Uh, an ability of the country or willingness to use their power, which, while it's not any longer large enough to meet our strategic obligations of blood, it's still the world's most formidable military power. But nonetheless, they don't think that we'll use it. Okay, so let's go through these various adversaries sort of one by one, and, and you can analyze the potential threat from each one. And we'll start with China, which is a country that, of course, is sort of thumbing its nose at the rest of the world in regards to these islands in the South China Sea. And then most recently, President Obama goes there a few weeks ago for the G20 summit, and they seem to go out of their way to humiliate him, not rolling out the red carpet for Air Force One and leaving the president to yes. go out the back of the plane. But beyond sort of the diplomatic indignities, Victor, what do we need to worry about when it comes to China? Well, the restoration of lost deterrence is more dangerous or challenging than is uh, the original acquisition of it. So what I'm saying is sometimes the medicine's worse than the disease. So we're going to have to tell China, everything you took advantage of us in all those areas the last eight years, that was a mistake, and now you're not going to do it anymore. But they've been so accustomed to the principle, for example, that they can make an artificial island in the Spratly archipelago and then 
adjudicate South China Sea commerce. But now we're going to have to say, "Uh uh-uh, sorry, we didn't mean to let you do that. And that's applicable to North Korean nuclear testing or sending missiles toward Japan or Putin massing troops as he is this week on the border of Ukraine. All of a sudden we've got to say, sort of 1939, uh, Hitler, you can't go into Poland after you've swallowed Austria and Czechoslovakia and the Rhineland, the Saarland. And people, they get very angry about that. And they think, well, wow, it's like a parent who has a five-year-old that lets the five-year-old run wild and all of a sudden is going to spank him. And that's a dangerous thing to do. And that's where we are with China and these other countries. So let me turn you to Russia since you mentioned it there. Vladimir Putin has been at the center of discussions like this for several years now. And most recently, it seems that the the ceasefire on which we've been working with the Russians in Syria has been designed for no other purpose than maximizing the extent to which John Kerry can embarrass himself in the public. And you've also got the work of what certainly seems to be Russian hackers playing a pretty central role in this election. So, Victor, Vladimir Putin, in a lot of respects, seems to have the wind at his back. Where, where is this going? Well, it depends on what he sees as his national interest. If he feels that there's no downside, both on his end and our end, in carving most of the Ukraine up or going into the Baltic states, i.e. there won't be a shooting war of any magnitude, it won't hurt his economy too badly any more than it's already hurt, and he can reconstitute the Soviet old republic and get you know, fame and honor in the process, and then we're not going to do anything, he'll probably do it. But that's his call now, it's not ours, because I don't think anybody in Amsterdam, a NATO country, is going to do much if Kiev falls, or if they go into Tallinn and Estonia. And I don't think anybody in this mood in this country is going to do anything, and least of all Barack Obama. So in the next four months, if he's going to ever to do that, I can't think of a more opportune time for him than the next... 120 days. Just in the weekend prior to when you and I are taping this, we had a couple of terrorist attacks within the U.S. on soft targets, a shrapnel-laden bomb going off in the Chelsea neighborhood in Manhattan, what seems to be an Islamist going on a stabbing rampage in a mall in Minnesota. And this is, of course, against a backdrop of a year in which we've had these really horrifying attacks in Paris and San Bernardino and Orlando as well. Um, Victor, when we, when we talk about nation-states, it's easy to sort of see the strategic rationale and testing the limits with the U.S. at a time when you've got a lame-duck president who's always tended towards passivity on, on foreign affairs anyway. Is it your sense that there's a similar dynamic at work with these, with these terrorist attacks, or are these too centralized and sort of ad hoc to ascribe that sort of thought process to? No, they're, they are more decentralized, but they're also more insidious. And by that I mean... ISIS accepts that, A, we're not able to utter the word radical Islam. They do it in self-identification, but we're not. And B, if Donald Trump says we have to look at uh, Muslim immigration from war-torn zones in the Middle East, which I think is his latest policy, and yet that is, that's synonymous with being a racist, then, and C, we know that people, for example, with a pipe bomb this weekend, was an Afghan, this ch- child of an Afghan immigrant, as was the Orlando, as was the nightclub in Paris. So ISIS is basically saying to us, look at Germany, look at France, look at you. Your country and your culture is so well affluent and lethargic and decadent that you can't even conceptualize us 
as an existential enemy of your own. And we're going to keep doing this. And especially when the, you know, the governor of Minneapolis, first thing he says in reaction to the mall stabbings, well, we got to make sure that we don't overreact, which is taking a cue from Obama. So ISIS looks at this and says, you know, you're, you're more interested in making sure that you appease uh, us than you are dealing with us. And then when Hillary Clinton says that oh, Trump's comments are what ISIS wants, ISIS doesn't want that. They want uh, Hillary's comments and, the, and they want Obama's comments. You and I have not, for a very long time, if ever, I don't think, discussed North Korea on this show. And, and, and there's, a te- there's a tendency in the media, I think, to forget about Pyongyang until they come back and test another missile, which they've done recently, uh, sending them in Japan's direction. So, Victor, there's, there's been a school of thought among some people in the foreign policy establishment for a while that the North Koreans probably aren't an offensive problem, that maybe you want weapons on the black market because they need the currency. But under this theory, the real imperative for Kim Jong-un is preserving the regime, and he knows that if he launches a strike against Japan or even the United States, that that would be the end of him and that would be the end of the status quo in, in North Korea. How confident should we be in that line of analysis? Well, I used to be very confident. I'm not at all confident because your last statement, if we just took out the United States, I'm not sure it's applicable because if he were to send a missile into South Korea or Japan, I don't really think this country under its current leadership would retaliate in kind. And he, I think he knows that. I think he also thinks that he can send a nuclear missile, blow it up in the sea, uh, Tokyo Bay or blow it up you know, right off the coast of South Korea, A, and they won't do anything, but they will make concessions. And if he were to get in a war, he thinks he might be able to survive it in a way that they could not, or at least, so he's trying to say, you know, he's sort of like the thug in high school that sees the guy on the way to Harvard and says, oh, I don't think you're going to be going to Harvard next fall because I'm going to get in a fight with you right now. And the person will avoid it at any cost because he has everything to lose. And so I think that's his premise. So let's turn from there and, and talk about Iran for a minute. The more, the more candid supporters of the president's nuclear deal with Tehran may concede in a way that the rank boosters won't, that there there were a lot of concessions to the mullahs in that agreement, but they will argue, okay, sure, but it, it was a down payment on getting Iran to sort of join the community of nations that now you have them inside the tent and you're able to construct a more sort of conventional diplomatic relationship with them. Um, Victor, that, that agreement is over a year old now. How do you grade it thus far? Well, I... I, I I had graded it a D minus, and now it's an F because <laughs> it, it's predicated on prevarication. It lies. It has to be because everything Obama told us about it, that um, he was not able to send them cash, for example, in this recent swap between hostages because it was against the embargo or the boycott limits was a complete lie, and they admit that now, that they did send them cash electronically as well as in cash with unmarked bills that will be used for terrorism. Uh, they sent mi- a missile at a U.S. carrier. They uh, buzz our warships. They promise death and destruction to Israel. They're on the side of Hassad. And their attitude, it seems to me, is that um, we took the United States to the cleaners and we were quiet about it for about six months because they wanted to broadcast how successful this deal would would be able to support. We got it, 
we find it even more effective to humiliate Obama in front of the world stage and to deliberately be provocative. And in contrast, had Obama not done this, and I think right now, with the collapse in oil prices and the really tough sanctions and embargo, that that country would be almost bankrupt, which begs the question, why did he do it? And the answer is because I think he had some strange sympathies for that revolutionary fervor as he saw it in Iran that had precluded him from denouncing it during the Green Revolution of 2009. And also he he feels that the Shia are sort of the underdog and they have legitimate aspirations in the Gulf and he'd like to see it, and I'm almost quoting him literally now, as a legitimate regional power. But it's going to come at the expense of Israel and the West. So speaking of the Muslim world, let, let me close today on another country that it's another one we haven't talked about much on the show in the past, and, and that's Turkey. Um, our relationship with Ankara is probably not playing out the way that President Obama originally envisioned it with these uh, efforts to reach out to the Islamic world. I, explain yeah. the dynamics there, Victor. Well, he, he came into office and thought that Erdogan was much better than the secular leaders of the past and the Ataturk tradition, and he was going to have, quote, unquote, a special relationship. And what that was interpreted as in Turkey was that Erdogan's Islamization of the country and his authoritarian destruction of democracy could get a green light. And so, and they were very provocative with the Israelis. They had the flotilla problem uh, with the Palestinians. They are chastising uh, Christians and Kurds. They have been of absolutely no help in the ISIS-Syria mess. And uh, they were strong backers of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt that convinced Obama to go. So we've gotten nothing out of that relationship other than the old establishment says, well, they're a NATO member and they're very valuable, so that's not antagonism. But the fact of the matter is, under Obama, we have no relationship to speak of with Turkey. It's just running on the fumes of... uh, the idea that a long time ago, once upon a time, they were a pro-American, pro-Western, secular, Islamic country. That's not true now. And they've been emboldened by our timidity with them. All right. All around the world. Uh, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, join us next week for the next installment of the Classes Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.